Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers, in adults and in the elderly so there's absolutely uh, hope there is hope at endend.org.au hi everyone welcome back to the podcast today i have the amazing dr james greenblatt with me dr james greenblatt is a pioneer in the field of functional and integrative medicine he is also a board certified child and adult psychiatrist, and he has treated patients since 1988. After receiving his medical degree and completing a psychiatry residency at George Washington University, Dr. Greenblatt completed a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. He currently serves as the chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts. Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on the scientific evidence for nutritional interventions in psychiatry and mental illness. Dr. Greenblatt was inducted into the Orthomolecular Hall of Fame in 2017 by the International Society of Orthomolecular Medicine. He is also the founder of Psychiatry Redefined, an educational platform dedicated to the transformation of psychiatry, which offers online courses, webinars, and fellowships for professionals. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Greenblatt. That's my pleasure. I'm glad I get a chance to speak with you. So firstly, I just want to acknowledge the absolutely incredible work you have done and continue to do in the eating disorder field. I have so much respect and admiration for your work, as do many of my colleagues. There are so many questions that I have to ask you, but the first one is, the sum of human health is as much about what we don't eat as it is about what we do eat. Can you discuss how nutritional deficiencies can disrupt normal brain function and why this is especially important for adolescents and the onset of anorexia? Sure. That, that is the six-hour lecture, but I'll try to distill it in a, in a couple minutes. I think the vast majority of our eating disorder patients are adolescents and trying to get through puberty. And puberty has a just developmental higher need for nutritional vitamins and minerals. And the expression, you are what you eat, I turned on its head to our, what you don't eat. Because too many of our kids that are restricting food groups, be it vegan or vegetarians, are missing essential nutrients to help them get through puberty. And my message is those genetically vulnerable individuals with these nutritional deficiencies 
create the perfect storm for lots of mental illness and, uh, and eating disorders, particularly anorexia nervosa is common. And we can spend hours going through how these nutritional deficiencies affect GI system, anxiety, cognitive processing, et cetera. Now, there are recent world-recognized genomic studies led by the amazing Dr. Cynthia Bulick, who has also been a guest on our podcast, of tens of thousands of anorexia patients, and they've confirmed that genes contribute to anorexia risk, and there are genes associated with anorexia that are linked with specific abnormalities of metabolism. Can you explain how this provides a powerful rationale for rethinking anorexia as a metabopsychiatric disorder? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've been kicking and screaming for 25 years, but Dr. Bulick's research kind of established the kind of genetic risk or reestablished it. But also, as they looked at some of the genes, not one gene, but there's a collection of genes, and these all had to do with metabolism. And that is her term, Dr. Bulick's, this metabolopsychiatric. And it's another way of us and the work that we're doing, helping people understand that this is not a, just a psychological disorder. There are profound disturbances in metabolism, and metabolism is driven, that's the energy our body uses, by vitamins and minerals. Now, from birth to infancy, health professionals routinely record the growth and development of a child and investigate any concerns as they arise. If this practice was to continue through adolescence, would there be a greater chance of early intervention in serious medical illnesses like anorexia? And how do you think this personal history could direct treatment options? Well, I believe that if we take Dr. Bulick's concept of a metabolopsychiatric disorder and we understand what I call nutritional psychiatry, then we actually have a model of prevention for many psychiatric illnesses, but anorexia nervosa in particular. Because if we start looking early on at nutritional deficiencies, kids that either genetically vulnerable to have uh, deficiencies or those high-risk kids that might turn to a vegan or vegetarian diet, then absolutely, I'm quite sure, and there's literature supported, that we could prevent this kind of black hole, very serious, life-threatening illness that we call anorexia nervosa. These early stages, we can pick up many of these nutritional deficiencies. We certainly can pick up some of the behaviors and the thought processes and early intervention will result in lower mortality and improved treatment. And why do you think it is that monitoring doesn't continue, that, that it does come to a stop and when we do it so well with younger individuals, but then it just sort of does stop? That's a great question. I, I think nutrition is something we don't think about in medicine. We're not taught about it in medicine. So we think about iron deficiency anemia in infants. But after that, because, you know, our major malnutrition disorders don't occur in many Western countries, we forget it. So it's not part of our culture, our medical culture, but it's certainly incredibly important to our health, be it cardiac health or any other aspect of medicine. Mental health is always lagged behind in terms of 
assessing these risk factors, but I think things are changing. Yes, there's lots of change on the horizon, which is very needed and very exciting. Now, with understanding that anorexia is a serious medical illness with life-threatening implications if it is left untreated, what would you include in a complete medical evaluation prior to somebody commencing treatment? Well, I think the two pretty dramatic areas of medical concerns are often missed that we see high correlation would be celiac disease and PANDAS. So PANDAS or PANS is the autoimmune disorder related to a strap or tick or any infections. And we know there's a high correlation between these infections and restrictive eating and OCD. But those worlds do not mix. Eating disorder therapists, doctors treating eating disorders do not routinely check for PANDAS. And, and the other one is celiac disease, very high correlation between young kids having celiac disease and eating disorders and a high correlation of, of going both ways, but something that could be and should be checked on every patient presenting with symptoms of anorexia nervosa, because both of those are treatable. Absolutely. And what else would you include in that evaluation? Well, besides a, a comprehensive psychological evaluation, trauma, bullying, and family history is critically important, two or three generations family history, the medical workup is as if it's a medical problem, not just a psychiatric workup without medical testing. So we are looking for nutritional deficiencies of vitamin B12 and vitamin D and zinc and iron to make sure there is not a nutritional deficiency that is untreated. Could you please explain to our listeners the role of the MTHFR gene in the treatment of depression? Sure. That, that, the MTHFR is one of the thousands of genes, but routinely many companies and doctors are testing for 20 or 25 genes, part of the 23andMe and other programs. And it's a gene that helps metabolize uh, folic acid. And, and folic acid, or folate is the, is the name, is the cofactor required to support the final step of all the neurotransmitters. And if you have one of the variants of MTHFR, called TT, you have very poor efficiency of converting your folate in food to the final step, the L-methylfolate that the brain needs. So individuals that have this genetic we call it polymorphism, just have a slower time making this form of folate. And we, we know that it's a higher risk for depression, higher risk for poor response to antidepressants. And many of our patients with eating disorder carry this genetic variation. With the knowledge that every person is biochemically unique, as is the individual's mental and physical health history, how much importance should be given to measures of BMI and normal ranges and blood work that are pres presently relied on in an anorexia examination and hospital admissions? Sure. I mean, blood work is critical and it's the foundation of all the work that we've been doing. And again, just poorly missed by so many in the eating disorder community. I'm not a huge fan of the concept of the BMI. I just heard recently that it was made up in the 1800s as 
looking for the perfect normal male, and they just averaged soldiers in, I forget where, in what country. But it, to me, it doesn't provide much information, as I think the eating disorder community is beginning to understand the weight is not as crucial as the thought processes and the cognitive distortions. So I think weight loss and weight gain are critically important for the evaluation. I think weight restoration is critically important for recovery, but, but the BMI is just a very crude term that has gotten more of uh, my colleagues and our patients in trouble from going home crying with the BMI report card because you were a few points over and uh, teachers or other kids made fun of you. It is so, so important that we move away from it. I mean, it's, I've, I recently read an article. It was written by a mother because she was so upset that her four-year-old had been sent home with one of these, as you say, report cards regarding the BMI, regarding that, her, that the child's BMI was over the accepted range and could the mother come in and, and discuss this, please? And she actually, in her teens, had had an eating disorder herself, and she was just mortified that at four years old, as a mother, she was being hauled over the coals because the BMI wasn't, wasn't appropriate. That beats my story. I've not heard of four-year-old story. I've heard first graders, and we've had many. We've run an inpatient residential treatment facility, and I can't tell you how many kids, their eating disorder started when the pediatrician told them that their BMI was too high. Do you, is there another measure that you would like to see used other than the BMI? Is there an idea that you have that a concept that you feel would be more suited? I don't have a, another kind of weight concept. I think the targeted weight ranges is how we proceed at, at Walden. So it's a range, it's not a number. But I think from my experience, thousands of patients, 20 plus years, it is more critical to understand the thought processes and the intrusive obsessive thoughts where regardless of the weight, I know that this individual is at risk and will develop a more serious medical consequences because those distorted body image thoughts the intrusive thoughts about weight are so pronounced and so intrusive that it impacts their life. So I wish we put a little more attention to the, the cognitive processes and, and the thought processes rather than the weight because we bring people in treatment programs and we bribe or conjole or tell them they can leave when they restore so many pounds but so they gain the weight because they want to go home or go back to school or whatever the goal is, but their thoughts haven't changed. And as soon as they leave, it, the relapse is just quite clear. And it's that chronic relapse in course that I think the eating sort of community has not really embraced in understanding what it is that's driving these distorted thoughts that's driving the eating disorder. Yes. And I myself was one of those ones that, right, well, if you tell me to gain to a certain amount, then absolutely, I'll do it. But that doesn't mean that anything has changed underneath. And as you say, what we know is that is the, the inner work that needs to be done to ensure sustained recovery. Absolutely. How can parents and caregivers advocate for an individualized treatment plan for their loved one? I guess what we're, I'm meaning here is that what I so often see 
in my work as a recovery coach is that there's a very much blanket approach to treatment. And so someone's put in a box and they have anorexia, so therefore they shall receive X, Y, Z. And if that doesn't work, well, too bad, we'll try it again. And so how can parents really advocate for their loved one in terms of having that real individualized care? I think understanding and education is the key. There's, there's plenty of, of work out there now that parents can, can read. And it really is going to be advocating for physicians and counselors and dietitians and coaches that do understand this bigger picture and making sure that the pediatrician is going to check for pandas and pans and that blood work is going to be done and the therapist is an eating disorder expert. So I think things are different than they were 25 years ago when I started in this field. So I think parents have to really as you describe, is advocate for clinicians and treaters that understand there's a medical model as well as the psychological. And as you said, you can't just be put into a treatment program and, and just say good luck. Yes, exactly. It's, and I, I see it time and time again, and it's highly frustrating. I, what I often say is that an eating disorder tailors itself to the individual Therefore, we need to be looking at that, that individual and their world as a whole and, and tailoring, tailoring a plan to them to have the highest chance at getting them through. Can you explain the term malorexia and how many physicians confuse cause and effect, thereby omitting nutritional deficiencies from therapeutic considerations? You know, sure. I, I use the example of when you're a child and you might have looked at the wrong end of a telescope and you're playing around and what happens, things that are very close to you look very far away. And what I've been trying to educate clinicians and helping parents see is that what's in front of them is a child or adult or a loved one who is malnourished. They have restricted major classes of food, sometimes fat, for years. We know the brain is 60% fat and you can't live without healthy fats. And certain minerals and certain vitamins. And our goal is to help people see what's in front of them is, is this malnutrition affects brain and affects behavior. And as we can educate clinicians, as we can educate parents, that the only way we can get recovery is to restore these malnutrition. So I just used the term malorexia, which might mean there are many different ways that an individual could become malnourished. And it could be celiac disease, I've mentioned. So celiac disease causes, it's a reaction to gluten, causes a destruction of the intestine, so you don't absorb nutrients. So that can go on for years and you become malnourished in many vitamins and minerals and nutrients. And you could develop anorexia if you're genetically vulnerable. You could develop malorexia from psychological stress or trauma, and you just can't eat. It could be due to someone uh, discussed your BMI and you went on a diet. But either way, these are many different arenas where the dietary restriction might come from many different causes or many different reasons, whether it's to lose a few pounds or celiac disease. But the end result is a malnourished brain. In your latest <laughs> book, Answers to Anorexia, Master the Balance of Hope and Healing, which you've written to extend current knowledge regarding the biology, biochemistry, and psychology of anorexia, 
You describe an anorexia patient's food restriction as a self-defence mechanism. Can you please explain how environmental stress and pathological fear coalesce into anorexic behaviour? Sure. I think this is an example of how I help new clinicians and parents not be critical and judgmental to patients struggling with anorexia. And I use the term that was written about by Michael Strober many years ago, this pathological fear. And one thing that most people can appreciate and most of our patients with anorexia can articulate is the chronic anxiety. They're intrusive, anxious thoughts about weight or body image or about what they have to eat for their next meal. And I share with parents, if they can just imagine the most anxious moment in their life, and I talk about losing a child in a crowded train station or mall. And that level of anxiety is heightened sometimes every waking moment for some of our patients with anorexia. So they're anxious about eating. And when they do eat, it triggers this emotional, anxious roller coaster. But restricting actually improves a patient's with anorexia mood and decreases the anxiety. And, and that's the model that I'm trying to help people understand. If, if you and I eat something, we, have, uh, we feel better. The neurobiology of many patients with anorexia, when they eat, it triggers a dysphoric state. The anxiety increases and there actually changes in brain chemistry. So it's just a, a model where I help parents understand that they're not refusing to eat to get angry at you or piss you off. They are refusing to eat because their brain feels better when they don't eat. And new research is describing it as a habit. Old research would go back 10,000, 20,000 years, an evolutionary adaptation mechanism. But any way you look at it, that a patient with anorexia, the vast majority, feel better when they don't eat. And we have to help them psychologically, but also neurochemically for them to be able to tolerate eating. It is totally the reality that I experienced in the depths of anorexia. It was very much a feeling of just overwhelming fear, like I could not articulate. I used to say to someone, it's like being having a complete fear of spiders and then being asked to eat those spiders. And so then you've got those not only have you got to put them into your mouth, but then you've got those spiders crawling around in, inside of you. And so it's just you literally want to tear your skin off. And I think for someone who hasn't experienced an eating disorder, it's really difficult for them to understand that the intensity of that fear. And as you say, your brain does feel so – everything feels so much better when you're not eating, if you're in the depths of anorexia. And it's quite, I often reflect with my clients now that I find it so incredible that I did what I did in my eating disorder because now I hate being hungry. So as soon as I'm hungry, I want to eat something just like anybody who hasn't had an eating disorder. It's just such a natural human, um, human function. But it's, and I think it's incredible that you can retrain your brain and your body to get back to that normality and that balance, no matter how long you've been suffering for it, is possible. Yes. And I, I think what is important, and, and thank you for sharing that example, because that was powerful, is that parents understand that and kids understand it. So they stop blaming each other for 
this disorder unraveling where the parents are blaming the kids for not eating and the kids are blaming anything and everybody. But as we can help them articulate that what they're experiencing is how their brain is interpreting the world or food and it's nobody's fault, recovery just becomes much easier for the family system. Absolutely. I say to parents all the time, going down a blame rabbit hole will achieve absolutely nothing. You need to conserve all that time and that energy to help your loved one on the journey. Don't work, do not go playing the blame game. Now, in your book, you also introduce a really simple approach to help guide doctors, therapists, and parents and family and friends through a com- comprehensive system of care based on nourishing the brain and nurturing the mind, which I just love. Can you please give our listeners more of an insight into that approach? Sure. I think the nourishing the brain is what I've been talking about is that after starvation, there might be a higher need for micronutrients. And that's the core part of my book and our work. So it's not just calories. It would be micronutrient supplements, mainly focused around zinc and magnesium and B12 and things like that. So that's the nourishing the brain. Some of it's based on testing. Some of it is based on understanding what happens in starvation. And then the nurturing the mind, that is getting a little more traction, if you will, in the eating sort of community. It's appreciating some of the lifestyle and mind-body techniques from yoga to mindfulness. But if we just focus on one, not the other, if we just focus on the nurturing and not the nourishing, it's just a much slower road to recovery. So important to have those two combined. And I, I love that nourish and that, that nurture. It's, it's, both of those words have such wonderful connotations, don't they? Right. Now, malnutrition can interfere with normal digestion and elicit gastrointestinal upsets. What are some strategies for optimizing digestion to support recovery in anorexia? This was definitely something that I struggled with and still struggle with, with my gut these days. Sure. And I remember the first year that 20 plus years ago, I was on the inpatient unit and patients would complain when they were served the meals that their stomach is bloating and it hurts and I can't continue. And we just said, oh, that's their eating disorder. And I never really thought about it. And then one day a patient pulled up her shirt and showed me this huge distended belly. That's not normal when you eat. And it became clear to me that these complaints that most of our patients go through, that's not their eating disorder. That's what happens when you're malnourished and you try to eat again. You don't have the micronutrients to make the digestive enzymes to break down the food. So you get bloating and distension and it's hard to eat much. So one of the things that we found is that zinc, the mineral that I think is most commonly deficient in our patients with anorexia, happens to be the trace mineral that you need to make all the digestive enzymes in your gut. So we provide not only zinc supplementation, but we would also give digestive enzymes to help digest the protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and then probiotics to help see the gut. So those three interventions will enable most individuals to just have less GI discomfort upon refeeding. 
And what about people like me? I've been fully recovered for six years now and I still really struggle with with gut issues. What would be your advice to people like me? Part of it would be to understand if there's any chronic damage or things that might be looked at and what we call dysbiosis, but then supporting with ongoing digestive enzymes and probiotics and monitoring again for these nutritional deficiencies, particularly zinc. There are studies that with patients with anorexia and celiac disease, two common zinc deficient disorders, where it often can take a year or so to replenish some of these micronutrients. Wow. Okay. So it can take that long. Yes. Yeah. And the digestive enzymes, sometimes if your gut stops working efficiently, whether we've seen it with trauma, we've seen it with restrictive eating and anorexia, sometimes digestive enzymes are required for, for years to get the gut back on track. Now, medications are commonly utilized as a first-line treatment for anorexia. In your opinion, what role can and should medications play in a biopsychiatric model of anorexia treatment? And is age a salient factor in this? I, I think medications have a role. I think everyone has heard that there's no FDA-approved medicine for anorexia nervosa. And I will repeat what the research has clearly shown is the antidepressants, the SSRIs in particular, have not shown to be helpful. Even though across the globe, most doctors are prescribing antidepressants for patients with anorexia. And when you ask them why, they might say, well, we know it doesn't help anorexia, but the patient's depressed and it might help the depression. In my experience, oftentimes the antidepressants get in the way of recovery and does, do not help anorexia nervosa. So those should not be first-line medications. Even if someone's depressed, many of the depression related to anorexia nervosa is re- resulting, it's the malnutrition, it's lack of iron and the thyroid abnormalities and all the other factors that the body is going through due to starvation. So those are the antidepressants. I have found for those individuals that end up requiring hospitalization that sometimes the atypical antipsychotics like Risperdal and Zyprexa can really be dramatic in turning around some of these younger kids who have a complete food refusal and might depend on NG tube feeds. So it's not my first go-to, but for individuals that do require hospitalization, sometimes the atypical antipsychotics have been very helpful. And why is that? What's hard for many people to understand or admit or talk about is many of our patients with anorexia nervosa are delusional, right? About their body and about food and delusions are fixed false beliefs. And people don't like to think about their daughter or their spouse or their son having a delusional disorder. An eating disorder is better because they, if they could just eat if they wanted to. And I think for years, we were just afraid to call this profound life-threatening illness, distorted thinking and a delusional disorder. And that's what Zyprex and these antipsychotics uh, treat. And that's the underlying mechanism. So for some individuals, it can just turn around some of these cognitive distortions just enough Mm. where they're going to be able to eat something where therapy can then start. 
Have you got any advice on how families who want to explore this more comprehensive system of care for their loved one can work with clinicians who have not had extensive training in or have kept abreast of recent studies in the treatment of eating disorders? Well, again, I'll recommend my book, Answers to Anorexia, which goes through the process, I think, very carefully and slowly for parents. And then it's really doing your homework and finding clinicians and doctors that are going to appreciate and work with you around a, a medical model. It doesn't mean that the psychotherapy and the family therapy is not important, if not critical, but without that other part, that the nourishing of the brain part, things are often just too slow and relapse is too common. Yes, I see that all too often. Now, treatment models for anorexia have historically focused on psychotherapy and medications. Unfortunately, research shows that this model only yields modest benefits. In many cases, a child or adolescent refuses to even attend, let alone engage, in therapy. Can you throw light on this commonality and offer any helpful strategies? Sure. That's why the earlier we can intervene as parents and professionals, the easier it is. And we're going to work with these kids in, in two different ways. The FBT Modsley model is important because it helps parents understand these are life-threatening illnesses and I'm in control until my, parent, my kids can take care of themselves. But the other part of the early intervention model is working with the kids around some of what they understand as their distress. So we can work around the anxiety. We can focus on their sleep problems and we can focus on their GI discomfort. And as we begin to do that, often with nutritional repletion and healthy eating and lifestyle patterns, then we prevent this kind of black hole uh, of distorted thinking and a diagnosis of anorexia. So the earlier we can help these kids and also understanding some of the risk factors, I think what's too often missed is a OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder in kids, parents not appreciating that that is a risk factor uh, for obsessional thinking around body image and food. And the earlier we can address it and treat it, the easier it'll be. Now, as a family or caregiver grappling with understanding this illness, why is focusing on control a trap? And And what do you mean by the body is trying to migrate? I think part of that is two two parts. I think that the control issues used to be how we identified anorexia nervosa, kids who felt that they weren't in control and they were using food as an issue of control. And I think that psychological explanation misses the malnutrition and the nutritional deficiency syndrome that we're discussing. So it's critically that we don't get into this struggle of control and that we understand it as a biological illness as we would understand diabetes or asthma because we're going to be compassionate or the child that has cancer. The community is compassionate and we are as parents versus our anorexic patient. We feel that it's an issue of control. So we're just going to try to control the issue. So that is where we lose the connection and the therapeutic alliance to help our patients struggling with anorexia. And when you talk about the body is trying to migrate, what do you mean? 
These are early writings of, of Gussinger, which was a psychologist who wrote the Adaptation to Famine, an article in the early 90s. And, and she just takes an evolutionary perspective on anorexia nervosa and why these genes have been conserved. And now, as Dr. Bulick has proven, there is this genetic vulnerability. Not everyone will develop anorexia, but those that do have these genes where they, one, can tolerate very small amounts of food. And during that restrictive eating, there's what's called this hyperactivity. Their body can just move. And these are individuals 10, 20,000 years ago that were able to move and find food for their tribes. And so there's a lots of other examples of this evolutionary adaptation, but this body needs to move and find food. It just doesn't make sense because if you're starving, you would think you'd be sick and you would just not be able to move. But those with this gene tend to be not only starving themselves, but in some ways hyperactive and can't stop moving. And that's called the hyperactivity of starvation. Yes, definitely experienced that one myself. Now, recovered individuals commonly say that eating through the fear was the hardest thing they've ever done, me included. Why does fear play such a debilitating role in anorexia? I, I think it's, it's just meshed with this physiological anxiety. And I believe when we treat that biologically, and that could be with medicines and or nutritional support, we can decrease that pathological fear. And that to me is the easiest way to get someone on a path towards recovery. What would be your top pieces of advice for parents and carers who are navigating the eating disorder journey with, with their loved one? The one that keeps coming to mind these last couple of years is be very cautious if your adolescent or pre-adolescent becomes a vegetarian or vegan. A vegetarian vegan diet is a risk factor for eating disorders, and I'm not making a judgment on what the best diet is. It's just a fact. And a vegan vegetarian diet results in longer recovery times, poorer outcomes, and it is a challenge. And so my message is not everyone that has to eat meat, but if your adolescent becomes a vegetarian or vegan, then you have to be much more aggressive about checking nutritional deficiencies particularly zinc and vitamin B12, because you can't obtain adequate amounts in a vegetarian vegan diet. I personally am opposed and find it very challenging for individuals to recover on a vegan diet. I know everybody is making accommodations and treatment programs and trying to rationalize we can do it, but my experience with thousands of individuals and the research supports it is just slower and often relapse rates are just much higher. What words of wisdom would you like to impart on those brave warriors out there who are still in the midst of their eating disorder battle? Hope, you know, is the word. We've seen kids struggling at age eight or nine, and we've seen adults struggling at 60 and 70, and I've seen recovery at all ages. So I, I think too many people have struggled for too long, because of a sense of hopelessness, either giving up on their providers, not wanting to be a guinea pig with more medicines, or feeling hopeless about the treatment that they can't get these intrusive thoughts out of their head. But we, we've seen recovery in 
in kids, in teenagers, in adults, and in the elderly. So there's absolutely hope. And again, the mantra is that nutrition, nourishing the brain and nurturing the mind. So the components of recovery has to include both. I could not agree more with you. The holding on to that hope is so, so important. And I'm a big believer in the fact that full recovery, no matter how long or how hard that you've struggled with an eating disorder for, is is completely possible. I, I had an amazing client who had been suffering for over 40 years and she's now in the best space she's ever been in. And it's just beautiful, beautiful to see. Yes, that's beautiful, sir. What do you hold hope for in terms of the future for eating disorder treatment? I think I'm hopeful that the field of psychiatry is waking up. All of medicine, be it heart disease, kidney disease, to now mental illness and psychiatry. So the fact that people are looking at micronutrient deficiencies provides hope for me. The fact that the research, Dr. Bulick and others, have made it clear that this is a biological disorder, that we can't just use psychological therapies, means that people are going to understand and research and continue to look for those biological tools to help our patients. And I think the research done with some of these autoimmune disorders, like PANS and PANDAS, where a post-infection can create severe eating disorder, has just really opened up our minds to what happens in the brain and how autoimmunity could result in many cases of eating disorders. So I'm actually very hopeful. There are many research uh, opportunities as well as clinical advances that are bringing the treatment of anorexia into at least a better biological focus and will just enhance our psychological models. And how do you feel about the role of lived experience in both, say, recovery coaching and clinician? How do you feel about that becoming more prominent in the field? Yeah, I think it's always, I've been a known Carolyn Costin for years, and she was always a big proponent of that. And I think more and more eating centers and more and more individuals understand, as we have in the addiction model, what lived experience means and feels and how oftentimes that is the most powerful ways that we can support, coach our patients that are struggling. Thank you so much, Dr. Greenblatt, for joining me. You are an absolute powerhouse of knowledge in this field and I will be sure to include in the show notes all your incredible books and Just thank you for your wisdom because I know that there will be so many people out here listening to this episode who will be having scribbled down so many notes and will probably go back and re-listen to this episode just to make sure that they can assimilate everything. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.